Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and I'm joined by security practitioners, Mike, Killian, and Matt. And our icebreaker question today was inspired by an article that said that IT is the most problematic department in the company due to internal broken processes, and they end up finding workarounds, creating a greater security risk for the company. Do you agree or disagree, and why? Hi, this is Killian. I had a lot of problems with that article. First off, just at the very surface level, uh, reading the whole thing through, some of their statistics seem off. They make a, a kind of a, an unsupported claim saying that people People are leaving the organization because of this, but they were also conflating the fact that people were upset at other broken processes like review processes. And I also, at the core, I don't disagree that in a lot of organizations, the IT process can be broken. And a lot of that has to go along with the fact that IT is always trying to keep up with what's going on and processes and things like that, and even internal politics can sometimes make it a little bit difficult. So it's it's unfair in a lot of ways to just put all the blame on IT. You also have to turn around and look at what we've made users expect. Everybody expects everything to be done yesterday and to have the newest technology at all times. But the problem with that type of rapid adoption and people being used to it is that it doesn't always work with what's going on inside an organization. So to be mad that you know you can't use the newest, hottest app that just came out last week is, is an unfair expectation on everybody. I don't disagree that there are problems um, sometimes with IT organizations not adapting quick enough, but sometimes there's a reason for it. And it's, it's unfair to just kind of throw that on IT. Yeah, I think to some extent, I both agree and disagree with this article. I too, it really kind of invigorated me when I read it, uh, even aggravated in some senses. Saying that people leave an organization because of bad IT, I think is uh, probably a just an overzealous statement. Uh, get, do people get frustrated? Do they, do they? Does it maybe a motivating factor for them to look for other employment? Yeah, probably. I, I think too, though, that IT is usually the, the source. Those broken processes can be the source of security vulnerabilities. You know, uh, I manage systems at my previous employer, and I found a lot of times that to implement a security control meant that we had to get rid of an IT bad practice. And so you could call that a broken policy. You know, like um, we deal all every day with the everyone group being all over file share permissions. But to that IT person, the everyone group is the fastest way to get everyone access to the data, which is what they're being asked to do by their customers. But from a security standpoint, it's also the worst thing. So is the process broken? Is the security process broken? Is the IT process broken? Is the user's expectations broken? And I think that's really, you know, what, what Killian mentioned, which is, you know, people have these such supreme expectations that when the iPhone 10 comes out, that their company is going to be ready to support it and all the new fancy features and apps that come with it. Whereas Apple spent years developing it and the company only gets to look at it the day that Apple releases it. And I think the realigning of those expectations would change things. But I think the other other perspective, too, is that IT is often the one now that's getting the budgets are getting cut. The staff and resources are getting cut. They're asking to do more with less. So obviously, to support those legacy applications becomes even more difficult. You know, there are systems that are still running on Microsoft Server 2008, but that's been sunset by Microsoft. But there's entire applications that only exist inside that ecosystem. But yet customers are expecting a rich user experience on their iPhone 10s. So I think that that misalignment is probably what's causing the frustration more so than IT actually having bad processes. All right. I'm Michael Buckby. I disagree with both of everyone who's spoken so far. I don't think it's fair to say this is wrong because it's an opinion. It's a perception. I do feel a certain level of defensiveness about this. Like, hey, we're not broken. You're broken. You know, go back to your cubicle and be quiet about it. Me, if it's not so much about IT and more about the business that like I'm trying to get things done and I'm having trouble with that, I wonder what this spells for the future of IT as a profession. Like I think more and more of stuff is going to the cloud and we certainly are part of that, trying to maintain those security 
you know, aspects of stuff, but even things like software defined routers instead of, you know, trying to set up your entire network fabric yourself and all sorts of stuff are making it more and more, I guess, streamlined. I, I just think I have a lot of sympathy for all of these uh, employees. And the thing that really jumped out to me is that the IT professionals themselves says 60% are using unsanctioned apps or devices because of unresolved IT issues. It's easy to point to something consumery and say, oh, the iPhone 10. But I mean, it can be stuff that's a lot more pinpointed than that. Say like you're doing a podcast and you need to do like video chat. You know, you're using something that's not entirely IT approved, even though it's totally fine. <laughs> so you're basically saying that companies are stingy and they're not giving you the funding you need. So I think so little of it's related to cost and so much of it's related to time. Technically, you know, if I open up my iPhone and I use some random note taking app to write down what, you know, I need to get done this week, is that an unsanctioned use of IT? Should I have gone to IT and said like, hey, you know, I need a note-taking app. And then they do an exhaustive six-month version of this and then push it out to everyone's phones. And it's a secure note-taking app that says like, hey, Mike, write a blog post this week. But you could be compromising like this, the confidentiality of that deal. Let's just say it wasn't that. Let's say it's my it's my notes and I have notes about meetings with customers where they're talking about the holes in their security program. If I go and use unsanctioned IT to do that and to store that data, now we're giving a third-party provider access to it. And so that circumventing of IT, is that a bad process from a user standpoint, or is it IT for not being fast enough to deliver me a secure note-taking app, like not anticipating my demands? I think that's what the article gets at, is that they're not, they're not, they're not able to provide you with a secure note-taking app, and it's obvious to think that you need a secure note-taking app, is I think what the message they're trying to send. Well, I guess I come back to like the worst culprits are is, is IT itself. Because they're the first ones to use those on that other solver because they have their permissions to install it. They have permissions to install it, but also... I text I text Killian like, hey, Killian, I need some help with this. Like we, we haven't vetted all of, you know, the cell phone providers networks to make sure that that text message is securely going to to Killian. W where do you draw the line for this stuff? Also, in, in the case of uh, my blog post notes, I would like people to break in and steal them and read them and disseminate them to all their friends. So <laughs> thanks, guys. And for our regular listeners, if you enjoy our show, if you can rate and review our podcast on iTunes. We'll send you a deck of our InfoSec cards that's based on the Cards Against Humanity card game. To learn more, please visit veronis.com review. And in our last podcast panel, our panelists thought that IoT devices and the security that they're posing will be in our near future. And I came across a rules list from Brian Krebs on securing your Internet of Things. And I just found rule number one just so hilarious that you should avoid connecting your devices directly to the Internet, which in my mind defeats the purpose of having an IoT device. Um, and there are some other rules that were practical, such as check the default, change the default settings, update the firmware. I think those are sort of the basic minimum. Which ones did you find helpful? I actually completely agree with the first point of not connecting the devices to the internet at all. Uh, I think that the convenience that you gain from the privacy that you erode is not worth it. Like think about Amazon Alexa. It listens to everything all the time, and, and, and it's taking that to give you targeted advertisements, right? That's an IoT device. But think of all the ways that once that Intel processor vulnerability is discovered on it, that that device could be exploited. Now you have someone in your home that can listen to every conversation in your house. So forget about the notes that you're taking on this phone. The prep call and the, and the blog post call before it makes it to the website doesn't even get a chance to be edited because it's all recorded by Alexa. So I'm, I'm a huge like a, opponent of all of this technology. I think that 
uh, usability and functionality has taken the forefront over security in these in these realms, and people are going to suffer. And I think that as we move towards like 2020, 2025, we're going to start to see like you know physical injury, loss of human life related to misconfigurations in IoT devices. Matt, you picked the wrong day to be fighting with Mike because he loves his Alexa. I do. <laughs> also, I don't know what you're doing with it that you're going to see loss of life, but you know. Like, Alexa, kill this guy. Alexa will respond. I have an Alexa right there. Oh, Alexa says sorry. She doesn't know how to do that. Case closed. So. <laughs> she does not do it yet. A couple different things here. The, the rule, as Brian Krebs lays it out, directly connecting to the internet is on like that you have a router with a firewall and you don't have ports directly connected to it, that you're not taking your cable modem and directly connecting it into an Ethernet port in the back of some device with, with nothing in between. Um, not that it's not connected at all. So a couple things. I, I'm a big proponent of IoT, just that I think it's very useful. I feel there's a hostility to the newness of it, to things like Alexa, but at the same time, everyone carries around their cell phone which has a GPS tracker on it and a microphone and has already been proven to listen to you for all sorts of, you know, issues. So I don't see how it's how having a tethered iPhone instead of a one that's in your your pocket is terribly different. And in general, we're going to see more of this because these are becoming more and more inexpensive. Like 10 years from now, everything is going to have, you know, some aspects of this. Brian Krebs rules fall down is that it puts the onus on the consumer. I really feel like the responsibility should be on the provider of these to make sure that they're, you know, by default secure, that by default there's a setup process that has, you know, secure passwords. There's a way to do updated firmware that isn't pulling out a serial cable and connecting to a laptop and things. But from a company's perspective, that's expensive to implement, right? To develop a secure product and maintain a secure product. Like they're in the product development space. Like, you know, you could think about it as if why should security be their responsibility? Like you're putting it on your network. You should keep your network secure. That's that's the argument that you hear from from the other side. And that's where, like, I just think I would just preach just don't use it. The convenience that can be gained from it, I think you put things at risk, like the Amazon door we talked about in the last podcast, where you put a lot, there's a, a key to let the Amazon deliveries get put into your home. I think that the, the risks that are present when we start to rush too fast in these types of IoT devices, you're not even giving people a chance to consider the implications because you're just getting them excited about the features. And that's all that everyone's focused on. Like I have, like, you know how hard it is to disable all those like sharing things on your iPhone? Like I have to go on an app by app basis and say, you don't have access to the microphone. You don't have access to my location. You know, you can't share this. Like, no, you can't use my photos and upload my photos to your cloud service. I think that the model has to be switched in order for IoT to be successful, where by default, nothing is turned on. And it's up to you to decide which features you want to enable and which which streams you want to open up to the internet. I just get around all this by using uh, my Motorola Razor from, uh, you know, 1997. Yeah. Or the, the Nokia. That's what I need to go back to, the analog Nokia. In the article, though, I kind of switched it a little bit. I think Brian did give a couple good tips or interesting tips, at least, for people to start to evaluate this. The one where you can go to uh, find my IP and then uh, enter it in one of the services just to check and see what ports you have open. Maybe the, the typical user is not going to exactly know what to do with this, but I think it's at least a good starting point to see if they are just leaking data um, or letting people write through to their uh, internal network. So I thought that was a pretty useful tip. And then uh, a little bit to Matt's point and a little bit to Mike's point, I think there is definitely an aspect of you get what you pay for. And that's one of the things that Brian brought up as well. The devices from the more expensive devices, the higher end devices from some of the more well-known manufacturers tend to have better support and uh, tend to have at least somewhat frequent 
updates and are more apt to take security into account when developing their product as opposed to the more budget-friendly ones that are just trying to get a product out in the market to capture whatever market share they can. There is a little bit of that from a consumer awareness perspective just to keep in mind as well too. To my mind, I draw the analogy of electrical power. You know, we have all these devices in our house. They all use electricity. If one of them was made in an improper way, it could literally electrocute you. And we have, you know, laws around that. We have standards around that. We have a lot of ways to redress that. And I just think we need the same sort of thing in terms of privacy as well. We don't make the expectation that like you were you were dumb enough to like buy this and plug it into, you know, an outlet in your own home. You should be responsible for it burning down your house. Like that I don't think that's a good argument. I don't think the argument is you need to, you know, reverse the firmware and, you know, do a analysis of every single aspect of every device you bring into your house that should be on the the people that make it, that it's reasonably secure. And if it's not, then it should not be up to the consumer to try to fix all those things. Also, Alexa, please don't burn down my house. So with so many IoT devices, new technologies and apps, we're starting to see a few side effects. And I wonder if we're working towards managing chaos or security risk. There was an article I came across during Christmas, and it was about traffic jams in neighborhoods due to rerouting a map. And so neighborhoods that were minding their own business suddenly became secondary routes for drivers. And it's causing quite a bit of traffic for certain neighborhoods. And I thought, hmm, that, that's kind of interesting. I feel bad for those neighborhoods. Then I came across another article about Whole Foods. Their pictures of them shown completely empty because they're using a new system called Order to Shelf. And we all know we live in a digital world. And I have a feeling that we'll be seeing more of this in the upcoming future. And we're going to see more news reports about how apps and technologies will shape our lives and create a new kind of inconvenience, chaos, and maybe security risk that we can't anticipate. And I'm, I'm a little worried that there are no security layers or frameworks for the unexpected. On the roads front, uh, just to tackle that, I mean, public roads built by taxpayers, like open to all taxpayers at any time. If you want to avoid people driving through your neighborhood, build a private neighborhood, build a private road and build a wall around it and arm it with a security guard. But it's unsustainable method. That's why people don't do it. So for the, the complaints about like how the traffic rerouting, I mean, that ultimately comes back to our government's inability to build highways that can sustain the number of people that they want to live in an area. You look at like Virginia, where they built the express lanes down the middle of 395. So there was uh, four lanes on each side and they built two express lanes in the middle, but they could have put eight lanes on each side with enough space that they made to do that. Uh, and so you could argue that that was like a mismanagement, you know, the, the building these two express lanes that only operate in one direction where they could have just added two lanes in both directions all the time could have been a misuse of funds, could have avoided people from getting into those neighborhoods. Looking at that as a perspective of you know, people and driving and the inconveniences it creates, I think is different from the problem uh, on the other side uh, with Whole Foods. Because if you look at the reasons why Whole Foods did it and what Whole Foods admits about this new process, it's that profits are up, that they're turning Whole Foods, they've lowered the costs and made Whole Foods more profitable, but it's at the expense of consumers not having access to the same goods that they had before. But to taking it one step further, Whole Foods has also almost completely eliminated waste. Food waste is one of the biggest problems that like we as a society face, like we as humanity face. And so I think that as long as the developments are in the right direction, like saving people time, whether even if it means cutting through people's roads, cutting down on food waste, I mean, these things are good for, for everyone in general. 
I think that that direction is okay, but there is definitely unforeseen consequences. No one could have anticipated what like what would happen with viral videos, right? 15 years ago, if you did something stupid at a football game, the whole world didn't find out about it. Now, there's so many cell phone camera footages of you that 10 people have a million shares on Facebook when you do something dumb at a game because you had a few too many beers and your team lost. You know, cell phones have just really lowered the standard of how stupid you have to be at a football game. Yeah. Like before, yeah. it was still possible. But you had to be really out there. Now, you know, it can be something as simple as like slipping down the stairs. You know, For the most part, I agree. I, I, I put both of these things together. And I think, Cindy, it's really interesting that you group these stories as well. Because I view sort of both of these as computerized efficiency, computerized supply chains. And in the one case, the dynamic maps and dynamic, you know, directions are getting traffic to be uh, more efficient by using all the roads that are available, even if some of them are through a residential neighborhood. And, you know, the same at Whole Foods, like, yeah, there's some problems, like there are with lots of software things where, you know, maybe it was a little too efficient, so they run out a little too quick, but I'm sure they're gonna address those. And I really love the point, like, yeah, this is hopefully doing a good thing, that we're using computers in a way that wastes less food overall, that makes things, you know, more efficient. It certainly seems like a waste of everyone and of humanity to throw a bunch of good food in the trash can, so. But are you going to be mad if you want to go buy some onions and potatoes and turkey and sweet potato and then it's not there and then you have to go to, I don't know, drive another 30 minutes for another Oh, a- absolutely. I this is a bump in the road. It's not it's not like their plan was, you know, we're going to do we're going to hide the sweet potatoes. Yeah, we're gonna make sure yeah. the customers can't get any yeah, sweet that, potatoes. That wasn't it. It was that like they tried to shrink it too much and like, oh, we messed up. I'm sure they're going to. We've had all sorts of crazy weather here and every time bread and milk just disappears instantly from the grocery store. And so I, I think like when you think about the the food shortages and how Amazon Kind of anticip- didn't anticipate that they would run out of food. I think you have to look at what are the what's probably the real reason that that happens, right? Because that system was probably designed that they have an expected delivery date to restock those items, and that they had an expected consumption rate to that those items would be consumed. I'd be willing to bet what the article doesn't know is that the trucking industry has a 50% deficient like in hiring that there's more routes and more trucks that they need in order to move all the goods that we need to get places. And so that might might not have the insight that what if it's the delays, the deliveries that are being delayed, and that that's the cog in the wheel that Amazon couldn't anticipate was that the trucks would never make it to the stores on time or wouldn't make it to the stores on time with with as much accuracy as they predicted. Because if you look, I mean, and that's something where IoT could come help out. I mean, could we get robots on the road? Could we have robots build more trains and move more goods by rail? I mean, these are like big questions. No, please. I, I no. think I can. I think I can fix this right now. Alexa, order sweet potatoes. You're gonna get like 50 pounds of sweet potatoes tonight. I don't think I have a problem. I wanted to t- uh, kind of connect. Well, first off, I, I totally agree with what Matt said about the roads. I mean, I think it's ridiculous to to the public roads. You just can't really go around and do that. It doesn't make sense, and it's not sustainable. But I want to connect that article with what we talked about in the beginning with Shadow IT. It's clear that that this township and and nobody could really expect the changes that, you know, Waze and other mapping apps would impact their neighborhoods. But going around and simply, you know, making something illegal or banning it or blocking it is probably the worst solution possible because it doesn't address any of the core of the problems. And if you look at that with 
some of the IoT apps and some of the changes in devices that we talked about, going around and just saying, well, you can't do that and there's no solution and we're not going to look any further than just saying no, causes the rise in shadow IT. So I think it's a, it's a parallel stream in many ways that these are unanticipated consequences of a change in technology and simply trying to ignore it or, or block it or not take into consideration for the future is is not a true solution that's sustainable. I'm just a little concerned that we're testing out our new technology on end users that don't necessarily know what's going on. I feel like there needs to be some sort of warning, a PSA to the rest of the world that we're going to expect this. That's all. And I understand the food waste and the public roads, but another story will probably see more of our that's wearable data, phone data, the apps that we use, all the data that's generated, they're potentially going to be used in court as evidence. So there was a murder trial where the data suggested the suspect was climbing stairs, which correlated to him dragging his victim down a riverbank and then climbing back up. And so there are a few things that come to mind that Technology can potentially serve as alibis. I was here on this day because my phone said so. Or we can think, well, is this data that was generated accurate or not? All I can think of are like crazy scenarios I could write into murder mysteries about how to get around this, where I like take my phone and attach it to my dog and give him a bone and let him play in the park where I'm off, you know, my fictional person is off committing horrible crimes. You know, like... It's it's interesting to me, but at the same time, it, you really could think it could go like either way, that it could either, you know, damn you or, you know, save you in any particular situation. I've climbed a lot of steps and never would have thought like, oh, yeah, this could also be, you know, interpreted as me murdering someone and dragging them around. Like, that seems like quite a leap. So You, you know what, Mike? I got perfect alibi for you. If you ever want to do something horrible, we have a lot of audio uh, from, from the podcast. Just splice it together. Play it back to Alexa. Because Alexa thinks you're at home asking you questions. Seems pretty foolproof. You could be out doing anything one. you want. I get an analog tape recorder. You know, like I was at home asking Alexa all this stuff. I couldn't have possibly been out, you know, with my phone going up and down steps. As technology develops and moves forward, law enforcement technology will follow suit. And that's to be expected. As we collect and house more data, the government, um, you know, due to national security regulations, has a right to subpoena that data. Uh, and law enforcement um, also has a right to subpoena that data in conjunction with criminal cases. And so more data means more subpoenas, means more government surveillance. And so that's just the direction that we're headed. But if you're a person that's not up to no good, that's not a, a, an issue that you have to deal with. And if you're a person that's up to no good, then boy, is it getting really hard to be up to no good for a long time. I mean, even if you look at like secure messaging apps like Wicker and um, WhatsApp, you know, was recently released, though difficult to think about fixing this problem at scale that the group messaging in those apps is vulnerable to uh, guessing of the encryption key uh, because it's a there's only a, a it's a large pool you know a 512 bit key is an immense amount of keys you'd have to generate to guess it but when you think about like nation states and having the ability to to guess those passwords you'd have to think that you know like the U.S. has the ability to to crack that encryption algorithm because if we had cracked AES 128 you know 10 years ago which who knows when you know that was officially done before the vulnerability was released we just find out about it when these things hit the public eye. And so I think that if, if you're doing something involved with technology and it's generating data, you should assume that the law enforcement, that the newspapers, they could eventually have access to it. Otherwise, you shouldn't use the technology like Alexa. 
you don't want the if you don't ever want your voice from the commands you ask Alexa to be used in court, you shouldn't never talk to Alexa. Well, what do I do when the police, like, you know, it's a new year, I'm trying to get back in shape, police show up on the doorstep and they're like, eh, Mike, it looks like you've been walking up and down a lot of steps lately. We just want to talk to you about this abnormal behavior. Like, is that good or is that bad? Also, my local police are quite nice. They're probably encouraged me to exercise more. I absolutely hate the argument that, you know, we should be okay with surveillance because if we're not doing anything bad, we don't have anything to worry about. That just really bothers me. But I think I think very practically, Matt is correct, though, is that if we want to take advantage of these new technologies and these conveniences in our lives, we have to accept a little bit of risk that someone's probably going to surveil us potentially um, or at least collect the data. It's it's a risk and a trade-off. I, I don't necessarily think it's right for people to exploit that. But it's, again, it's the trade-off that we have to live with. Do we have a tool of the week, Mike? Yes, it is the Pwn Proxy. It's an open source uh, command line utility that lets you set up a proxy between you know a client network application and a server network application. So these are really neat tools in general, and there's a lot out there. Um, what makes this one kind of interesting to me is that it's written in JavaScript and it's something that you can very easily incorporate into other applications that you're writing. Um, so these are used a lot of the times if, say you want to know, like, what is Alexa doing on my network? What is this application on my phone doing on the network? And this would be a way for security researchers or anyone who's interested to set up a proxy in between those devices and the greater internet and, you know, really look at the packets and see what's happening. Yeah, so that's it. The Pwn Proxy Open Source Utility. You know what, Mike? If you're not running any illegal apps, why do you have to worry about what those, uh, what's going across your network? Just saying. saying it's very suspicious. I want to make sure that none of the illegal apps are on there. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Mike Buckby, Killian Englert, Matt Radilak, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you want to follow us on Twitter to find some of the stories we're discussing, you can find us at infosec underscore podcast. Thanks, and we'll meet up again soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye.